Well, stand with me as we rise to read our sermon text this morning, and if you have a Bible, I hope you do, you can turn to Psalm 122 as we continue our four-month or so long series that began a few weeks ago through the Psalms of Ascent, these songs and prayers that God's people of old would sing, that they would utter, that they would speak as they made their way up to these annual feasts and festivals at the holy city of Jerusalem. And we come to a text today that is well known for a variety of reasons, but not least of which is surely the very first words that are found in verse 1. But let me read all of the nine verses for us and then pray that God would bless our study of this wonderful psalm and then we'll begin together. So here now as God speaks to you once again through his perfect word, a song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who you love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we ask that even as we come to this text that urges upon us, a special devotion, delight, and desire in coming into your presence, that you would help us to do so even now as you speak to us, that you would send your spirit into our very hearts, that we might have that gladness of which this psalm speaks, that we might give unto you the thanksgiving that you have decreed, that even in this room this day we might know your peace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A German-born Lutheran pastor by the name of Wolfgang Schuck. Not long after the Reformation broke out in France, he took the pastorate of a Lutheran church in Lorraine, France. And, of course, as a good Reformation Lutheran would do at the time, he was preaching the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. And also, like a good Reformation Lutheran would do at the time, he was always decrying the idolatry of the Roman Catholic Mass. And so for such a zeal for truth, he was soon put into prison. And he went through a series of difficulties there in the prison that we don't have time to cover this morning. But eventually they needed to figure out what they were going to do with this zealous Lutheran Reformation fanatic. Then they called him into the Duke's presence, this Duke that was in charge of this area of France, and they decreed that he needed to be executed. And so they decided that they were going to burn him at the stake for his devotion to Jesus Christ, or at least as we would understand it, devotion to Jesus Christ. And it said that the moment that the judgment was uttered, that Wolfgang Schuck began to speak something. And people leaned in to hear it and wondered what it was, and it quickly became clear that he was reciting Psalm 122. I was glad when they said, let's go to the Lord's house. If you know church history well enough, you know that if you love the Psalms, if you sing them, you read them, you pray them, they get so ingrained into your soul and written upon your heart that they just might be some of the final words that you utter 
here on earth. For someone like Shook, the words that we're going to look at this morning gave him great hope. Even happiness, as he understood in that execution, he was being called to the Lord's house. But of course, for those of us in here today, it's much more common that every single week what we experience on the Lord's Day is God summoning you into His house that you might worship Him. And I wonder if you have that great desire of which this psalm speaks, the great confidence that this song for sojourners sings about, or that peace in the heart that is a prayer for pilgrims at the end of our passage today. So it's a rather simple text that's all about arriving in God's house. And that's what I want you to see today. How to arrive in the Lord's house. Because you certainly know that as you come into the Lord's house to worship Him, everyone will walk in a room like this differently. Some of you might have walked in this morning with no expectation whatsoever. You've perhaps walked into this church, this very room, Hundreds, if not thousands of times. You know exactly what's going to come. You know the order of the prayers and the songs. You know what you're going to expect in the preaching and in the Lord's Supper. And so there's not much anticipation whatsoever. Or you could come in a room like this with some degree of trepidation, even apprehension, because you've never been in a room like this before. You don't know what it is we're exactly going to want you to do or or want you to say. You don't know what your neighbors next to you, in front of you, or behind you will say to you. And so there's perhaps some degree of anxiety when you sit in a chair. Or it could be, of course, that you come into a room like this and there is a great desire. There's a great delight in what we're getting ready to do, which is, of course, give to the Lord the service of praise that He alone is due. So when you tend to arrive in God's house... You arrive at God's place of worship, what most often marks that walk into such a location. Well, our text today is going to give you three specific truths about how the Lord wants you to arrive into His house. Number one, arrive in gladness. That's verses 1 and 2. Then verses 3 through 5 tell us to arrive with thanks. And then the final four verses are all about arriving for peace, arrive for peace. Peace, so arrive in gladness, is how verse 1 begins. Notice a song of a sense of David. Although it looks like something of a superscription in our English Bibles, it genuinely is the first words of this psalm in the original language. It's the first of four songs of ascent that David wrote. So kids, what do you know about King David? Well, you may know that he's the second king of Israel, whereas the first king in Israel, Saul, was a king after the people's heart. David was the king after God's own heart. He was this shepherd warrior king that ruled with justice, that of course committed great tragic sins along the way, but nevertheless, God made an eternal everlasting covenant with him. And what's important to recognize for this psalm, at least, is David's desire, we know from the Bible, was that he would build a temple for Yahweh. But God said, no, you don't get to build that temple or that privilege and even responsibility. That's going to go to your son, whom we know as King Solomon. So when verse 1 talks about the Lord's house, what we need to think about is the earthly tent that is the tabernacle, which is where God's presence at that time dwelt with his people. So David says, notice verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. 
You know, it's important that you even recognize right from the outset that this isn't some type of individual psalm. It's a communal psalm. It's one that is about sharing in the delight of worshiping God. Someone said to me, David says, let us go into the house of the Lord. Has there been a time recently in your own life where you've said to a friend, perhaps a coworker, neighbor, family member, even this week, said, let us go to the Lord's house on Sunday? Because what you need to recognize right also from the outset of this psalm is what we need to understand about the Lord's house. David's speaking here about the tabernacle. Of course, in time, the tabernacle would give way to the temple where God's people would gather to worship him, where God's presence uniquely dwelt among his people. But then in time, after the ascension even of Jesus Christ, that temple was destroyed. Certainly, I would want you to understand it's never intending to be rebuilt because the Bible will tell us at the very end of Revelation that when God brings the new heavens and the new earth upon this world, that God and the Lamb will be the temple. There won't be any temple there. And the New Testament further tells us that in the age in which we live, which is the age of the new covenant, that the church of Jesus Christ is nothing other than God's holy dwelling place. It's God's temple. So the immediate implication, of course, application to us is when this text is talking about being glad to go into the Lord's house, it's nothing other than being glad to worship with God's people in local assemblies like this because that's how the church is advancing throughout all the earth. So why might you then be glad to gather in God's house on His day? I'm sure we could come up, couldn't we, with a laundry list of reasons why we ought to be glad, happy, joyful, even desirous to come into God's house on the Lord's day. But you might simply just think about it in a few sweeping movements. First of all, the Lord's house is our home where security, as we'll soon see, and and safety are genuinely found. The Lord's house is also our school. It's where we learn the word and the way of Jesus Christ. The Lord's house is also our hospital because it's in this place that you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, his shed blood, and it's by his wounds that we are healed. Of course, it's in this place too that we find God's bank because it's here that we draw on the internal inheritance that's ours in Jesus Christ of which the Holy Spirit is a guarantee and down payment who would not be glad to come into such a place. Now, for the last 10 years or so in our house, we've had a number of children's books that have been bought and rebought because they've been used so often. And one of those is this classic kid story that children you may have read before or heard of before called We're Going on a Bear Hunt. And it's about this adventurous family that wants to go on a bear hunt. And they're singing, we're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. They go through grass. They go through forest. They go through rain. They go through snow. They go through mud. And eventually they get to the bear's cave and they see the bear. And then they go back home, racing away from the bear through all of that same difficulty. And they get inside the house and they realize that the door hasn't been shut. And so it's once that door is shut that finally, as the story says, it's, Security, there's safety now, because the door's been shut. And it's that sense of safety, of being inside, that David speaks about. Notice verse 2, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. For to come to any ancient city and get within the gates, well, finally, you are in the place of protection. So David's rejoicing here that they have finally, after some degree of a pilgrimage, some degree of a journey, they have arrived in The Lord's house where safety and gladness is found. 
Verse 3 tells us not just to arrive in gladness, but also arrive with thanks. You see verse 3 and 4, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. So, of course, in David's time, what you would get would be these annual feasts that we often speak about as tabernacles and Passover and Pentecost. These feasts were saints in Israel that were scattered abroad, that they were summoned to go to that holy city where they would be gathered together. Which maybe that's the reason verse 3 speaks about a city being bound firmly together, not just the literal nature of Jerusalem's construction and even its kind of tight-knit reality, but also its spiritual truth that in The Lord Jesus Christ, we now today are being knit together in love and in unity, scattered abroad, called together every single week to come and and worship the Lord in his house on the Lord's day and to render to him that which he has decreed that we render to him. Which again, notice is at the end of verse 4, giving thanks to the name of the Lord. So whereas, you know, our nation just this past Thursday, didn't they celebrate We celebrated, some of your homes celebrated, perhaps all of you celebrated, this annual, once in a year, Thanksgiving Day. The truth of Christianity is that we have a a weekly Thanksgiving Day, where the Lord summons us every Lord's Day to give unto Him the thanks that He deserves. And I wonder if you come into this place with any degree of regularity and sit in these seats and stand to sing and to read and to pray, if you sense Thanksgiving, gratitude, rising in your hearts. I remember this story from an old pastor named Bruce Larson where he once went to a Presbyterian church in Omaha, Nebraska. It was this large cathedral-like structure. And for whatever reason that I haven't ever fully understood, when uh, the people came into the church building that night, everyone received this helium-filled balloon. And they received it with instructions that whenever, in the course of this worship service, you feel joyful... Let that balloon fly up into the ceiling. And so as Larson retells the story, of course, along the way in that worship service, you find these balloons just rising here, there, and everywhere. Yet after the end of the service, still a third of the balloons were in hand. That the Presbyterians either didn't feel that joy that belonged to the service of the Lord or couldn't find ways of expressing it. And surely you know as well as I do, you could come into a room like this and sit here for an hour and a half and never feel joyful. Never find your soul rising in thanksgiving. Now that might not be true for all of you. You could sit in here, of course, today with a clean conscience and say, yes, when I gather in the Lord's house on the Lord's day, it's normal that I feel utterly full of gratitude and, and thanksgiving. For, of course, the reasons for thanksgiving abound. But I suppose that maybe even for many of us, if we were honest and humble enough to admit it that grumbling, not gratitude, tends to be seen more often on our faces in the Lord's house, heard more often in the tone of our words and in conversations along the way. But to come into the Lord's house with such a grumbling and complaining spirit is to be disobedient, isn't it? The Lord has decreed, give thanks to my name when you come into my house. So what it's telling us in verse 3 and 4 is that Jerusalem was the center of the nation's religious life. There was this priestly work that they were to render unto God, and this priestly work that belongs to us as well, that we as the priesthood, the people of God, even in this new covenant age, when we come into the Lord's house, He expects, He of course even demands, 
that we come with thanksgiving in our hearts and on our lips and, of course, extended even with our hands of fellowship. But you'll notice in verse 5, it tells us that Jerusalem wasn't just a place that was the center of the nation's religious worship, but also it was the center of their political worship. Verse 5, for thrones of judgment were set, thrones of the house of David. It's telling us in verse 5 that the holy city of Jerusalem wasn't just a place of worship, it was genuinely a place of judgment. Maybe you can think of those times in the Old Testament when people would come up into the holy city of Jerusalem and what they were most desperately longing for was justice in their dispute, a settlement of wisdom and righteousness in the conflict. You can even recall this famous scene when these two ladies come to King Solomon and they are arguing about who gets the baby. And it's a dispute over justice. And Solomon in his wisdom decrees, well, just split the baby in half. Because, of course, the mother who's the true mother will say, no, the other can take her. It's a place where they come for justice, to exercise a kingly authority in God's governance over his people. And the same is true, isn't it, in the church today, that when you come into the Lord's house, it's a place of worship, no doubt. But it's also a place of judgment. As God continues, Jesus Christ, to shepherd and to judge and to govern his people and local assemblies like ours as he's entrusted the keys of the kingdom to his under-shepherds, they may bind and loose according to his truth and according to his words. And so what you find then in this middle section is what David is speaking about is there in the holy city of Jerusalem, the work of a priest and the work of a king are, of course, united. And I hope that you can't think of a priest's work and a king's work without thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ who is the true priest king that reigns from holy heavenly Jerusalem above. You know, John Calvin once said, all of our hope for salvation is bound up in these two offices that Christ is our priest and Christ also is our king. That he not only prays for us and atones for us, but he rules us and governs us and guides us according to his truth. So arrive in God's house in gladness. Arrive in God's house with thanks. Finally, arrive in God's house for peace. For peace. Look at verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now there's this play on words that exists in the original. You might know that the Hebrew word for peace here is shalom. So it's as though David is saying something like, pray for the shalom of Jerusalem. And shalom is this notoriously difficult word to translate into English. Like peace just really can't capture the essence. I've heard uh, one scholar say before that to try to define shalom is like trying to define a person according to their social security number. You, you just can't do it. It's just much fuller. It's much richer. It's much deeper than the English language uh, can express. It's basically the return of everything to what it was meant to be. It's almost as though what David is praying for here is heaven reaching down and falling upon the earth. And so he's praying first for God's city, for verse 6 continues. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. You know, our nation for the last five years or so has been on this rampage to establish safe spaces, haven't they? Various authorities and powers and schools and universities, colleges, even workplaces, safe spaces where you can be whoever you want to be and say whatever you want to say without any fear of having to think otherwise. And maybe it's in its own ironic way 
uh, sinful human hearts longing for that which can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, of course, it's here in the Lord's house that you find the only true safe space. Because what you need to understand that when you gather with God's people on the Lord's day in His place of worship, what you find is the Lord welcoming you wherever you are. That He won't break bruised reeds as much as we like to do that. He won't quench these flickering flames that are about ready to blow out under the world's scorn and shame. Of course, what you need to know in the fullness, though, of Scripture is that Jesus will meet you wherever you are, but he will never leave you there. He's always calling you, isn't he, to put off the old man of sin, to put on the new life of of righteousness. That's, of course, found in Jesus Christ alone, to cover yourself within the righteousness that he alone can provide these pure garments that you only receive if you look to him in faith. That the world out there is nothing more than storms and tempests and hurricanes and troubles. The world in here has nothing more than peace. At least it ought to be. Unity and care. So he's praying, isn't he? Not just for the peace of God's city, you'll see verse 8. It's the peace of God's people. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. You could trace that theme throughout all of the Bible and see how often God's people are exhorted to pursue peace with all people. Which surely reminds us that sin causes enmity, not just between those who don't know the Lord Jesus, but even those that do. Sin creates strife. That's why Paul can say later on in the Bible, in Galatians chapter 5, when he's exhorting the churches in Galatia to love one another, lest you bite and devour each other. Uh, What should be true in a place like this is that you receive the balm of peace, not the bite of strife. Some of you are very good at biting, and you don't know it. Some of you are very good at extending the balm, and you also don't know it. But what the Bible tells us here is to pray, to yearn, to long for the peace that Jesus Christ alone can provide, because of course he came, Ephesians 2 says, to preach peace to those who are far off, preach peace to those who who are near, that when his people gather in his place, they might know his peace. Which then leads us to verse 9, the close of our text. It's prayer not only for the city, for the people, but also God's house. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. And if you understand that in its fullness, what David is saying here is he's going to seek the good of Jerusalem because he knows as Jerusalem abounds in peace and prosperity, the house of the Lord will abound in the same. Maybe that's the reason why that the Apostle Paul commands us to regularly, routinely pray for governing leaders, to pray for city officials, to pray for our authorities in the land that they might know peace and prosperity. So that, of course, the Lord's house might know the same peace and prosperity. So this then is how you're meant to arrive in God's house. Arrive with a heart that's full of gladness, a desire to extend thanks to the Lord and show forth that peace that's found in Jesus Christ. If you ever had a chance to read presidential history or come across American historians, uh, many of them would know what's routinely referred to as the dear best letters of President Truman. It was sometime after he died that there was this discovery of 1,300 letters that he had written to his wife, Bess, And when they were discovered and eventually declassified, historians flocked to them to try to figure out if there was some sort of unique information they might find related to 
a diplomatic or political history, and they found a few things, but most of the historians were just simply overwhelmed and astounded at this constant connection of love that this leader of the known world at the time had for his wife. And when you see David's language here, it's right, and I do mean it reverently, to understand this is nothing more than a love letter to the Lord's house. That's exactly what you see in these nine verses. You see the king, the man after God's own heart, exuding and exalting in the great affection that he has for gathering to worship the Lord. So as we begin to close, let's think how David's love letter might instruct us to grow in our own love for worshiping the triune God as we gather in his house every single Lord's Day. So let me give you three final things as we begin to close. Number one, worship in God's house is our priority. It really is that simple, isn't it? Now, this is the center point of what we do. Everything in the week is building from this and building towards this, what it means to gather in God's house, to worship Him according to His promise and in His great word of grace to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I wonder if you gather with expectation and anticipation that God's actually going to do something good for you in this place. I sure hope you do. And I hope all of you are are growing in such an anticipation and expectation because you know this is the priority. So parents, let me exhort you uniquely at this point, especially those of you with younger children. Uh, you, You want to parent your children in such a way that they understand what it means to gather with the Lord's people on the Lord's day in the Lord's house that you rarely if ever hear questions like, do we have to go to church tomorrow? Or even worse, are we going to church tomorrow? Uh, You want them to know what it means to gather with God's people. You want to know what it means to pray for the gathering of God's people. You want to know what it means to find supreme joy in Jesus Christ and hearing from his word of promise and according to his means of grace. In the same way, students, if uh, you're older and soon going to maybe depart from your parents' house, maybe you'll move to a city that's far enough away that you'll have to find your own new church to go to, or perhaps even you'll move out of state and therefore you're going to have to definitely find a, a new church to go to. Now understand that the Satan that strives against you will so often strive against you in the simplest of ways. Just stay up real late on Saturday night because then I'll be on your shoulder in the morning. This bed is so much more comfortable than going to a church where hey, you really don't know anybody anyway. I mean, if you went there, you don't know what they're going to say. You don't know what they're going to do. No one's going to welcome you. Why don't you just stay here? I mean, you have all this work that you've got to do, all these things that you have to study for your exams and tests later on this week. Why would you ever go there? What's much better, isn't it? The student that says, well, yes, I'm going to go, but not just that, has the corporate community desire of verse 1. That goes to other students and says, well, let us go to the house of the Lord together. So you want to see that worship in God's house is our priority. Now, number two, worship in God's house demands our prayer. Demands our prayer. It should be natural for us to understand that by verse 6, all the way through the end of the passage, that David is breaking out in prayer because of his love for the city, because of his love for the Lord's house, you'll only pray for that which you desperately love. A few things will show your love for God's people. A few things will show your love for God's house. A few things will show your love for worshiping God as how often or how little you pray for God's people, God's house, God's worship. Everything that we would want to be true about this place, everything that God wants to be true about this place, Ordinarily, is going to come through the faithful prayers of God's people. So pray not during the week that the Lord would fix the things that you grumble about in this church. 
Pray not simply that the Lord would fix those things that you so desperately are preferentially attached to. Pray that there would be peace here. Pray that there would be thanksgiving that rises in every heart. Pray, of course, that there would be unique joy and gladness when God's people arrive. And finally, worship in God's house because Christ is here. Christ is here. Because if we understand the accent of the text right, it's, it's a desire, it's a supreme desire because it's the Lord's house. Underscoring, underlining, this is where the Lord is. He has promised uniquely and supernaturally to be with His people when they gather in His house on His appointed day and they worship Him through the ordinary means of grace. The Lord Jesus Christ has extended even an invitation to you to come into His house. And I pray you would not be like those people in Jesus' day in the holy city of Jerusalem that missed the Savior. Because you might know that Jesus, just like the pilgrims in these texts, went up to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Passover. He arrived into the city, didn't he? Riding on a donkey, and they said, Hosanna, a blessed be the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But that welcome according to Luke chapter 19, turned Jesus into weeping. Because he said, how I offered you peace, but you did not know it. You did not receive it. And so what instead you're going to get is the promise of enemies surrounding your gates, enemies surrounding this city, enemies who will destroy you and all of your children. Because you did not receive my offer of peace. And he makes almost the exact same warning to ordinary churches like ours in Revelation 2 and 3, speaking to these churches in Asia Minor. If you forsake your first love, I will come away and take away that lampstand. For I've offered to you my peace. For I am the tabernacle. I am the true temple. I am the true son of David. I am the great priest king who rules over God's people from God's holy city above. Won't you come and worship with me in my house on my day? If you find yourself with your eyes of faith looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, I think you'll find yourself growing in gladness. I think you find yourself, no doubt, growing in thanksgiving. You will also find yourself sitting, worshiping, singing, praying, receiving the Lord's peace. That you too might say, like David, I was glad when they said, let's go to the Lord's house. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you have called us to come into your place to worship you. We pray for the peace of this place, that it would be full of gladness and thanksgiving, that we might know your ministry to us in Jesus Christ, a ministry that's for our good, a ministry that's for your glory, a ministry that brings us eternal life, hope, and everlasting blessedness in your presence, that holy city above where we'll see the king in his beauty and there will no longer be a need for a tabernacle or temple. For you and the Lamb will be such unto us. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we